All right. Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host for the Post Money Plan podcast. As always, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge. So my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thoughts on topics within personal finance, economics, and investing. Don't forget, you can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. So today we're going to be talking about stock options and some of the basics there. So I have my guest Eric Sunday on the show who's got a little bit of background in the options market. So I wanted to bring him on the show to explain some of the basics. So welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, how you doing? Good, man. So I just wanted to cover some of the basics, like what they're used for, what options are, what they're used for, how they're priced, you know, some of the strategies that people use. How about you just give us a little bit on your background and your experience in the industry? All right, so, um, so I've been seven years in finance, in the finance world, working for Bank of New York and State Street. Um, I've worked as a derivative pricing analyst in Bank of New York and also now like a fund account for private equity for State Street. For my first five years, I was pretty much doing valuation for like swaptions, which are like um, options on swaps, like higher interest rate swaps or credit default swaps. Getting pretty sophisticated there. Oh, yeah. I kind of got plunged into the deep end because I came from, like, engineering background. So my only strength was the fact that I had, like, a harder math background than most of the finance people that were there. So it kind of helped me with the derivative part because it's very mathematical if you think about it. As far as even the term derivative, like differentials and integrals and stuff. Because actually for five years, I was actually doing the actual trade processing of those options. So I got to see how each piece of the option was being evaluated and how it made the whole entire price and how the market affected it in real time with like real funds, whether it was like um, mutual funds, hedge funds, and recently the private equity stuff. Pretty much for Bank of New York, I was kind of like processing the trades trace for the options so we had to really scan and make sure that all the information was correct as far as different um, inputs that we were receiving from them like uh, expiration date rates what type of option it is and essentially who was in the money who was out the money so like it, it enabled us to figure out what part of an option contributes to the price and what's more or less benign to the price i guess i mean the basic terms of options is that you want the ability to choose whether or not you could get a good price into something. That's pretty much how I, I've kind of like simplified it to myself, is to give you a choice in getting a discount. So well, actually, just... I think that's a good place to jump in and talk about the very basic. I want to explain some of the very basics of options for the audience. Like, first off, what I think of is an option is an agreement between two parties. So basically, an option is a contract. It literally is an option. So that's why they're called that. <laughs> yeah. So it's giving the owner of the option the right, but not the obligation, to buy or sell stock at a predetermined price up until an expiration date. It's giving optionality without full commitment. That's what I think of. But it comes at a cost, right? So you have to pay a one-time premium if you're buying an option. So it's kind of similar to insurance in a way. With insurance, you, you pay a premium so that you're covered if something bad happens. And with an option, you pay a one-time premium, and then you get access in case something good happens, for example. So you're saying, basically, you were doing your job pricing options and processing trades and stuff like that for your employer, 
and it didn't mean a whole lot to you before, but then once you had seen some of your coworkers' trading options, then you got interested and it made you pay attention to what you were actually doing at work? Pretty much, yeah. What it did is give me, because you know when you're in finance jobs, especially when you're in big companies, everything is so specialized to a point where you kind of have a hard time seeing the big picture of what you're doing, right? So in a sense, for me, the experience of watching my coworkers gain from their knowledge at work made me a better worker, which in turn made me a better option trader, which is like it kind of reinforced the whole knowledge, application of knowledge, and then going back to the drawing board to regain new knowledge, you know, reform the knowledge you already have, and then go back at it again, applying it. Which is where we all want to be. <laughs> you, you want to be learning at your job, appreciating it, digesting it, and then applying it and putting it back in and then making you a better worker. Like, that's where we want, all want to be, right? Yeah, yeah. Because it, it, on top of that, it gives you the appreciation of your part in what you're doing. Because, you know, all, all these times when you work in a job that's nine to five, that kind of like bleeds into the next day or almost where you don't know what date it is or other than the day you're typing into a computer, you tend to like lose the perspective that you have. It makes you feel like your role is so insignificant that you, you might not be there the next day and it, it wouldn't mean a difference. But at the same time, because of that feeling, you kind of like lose interest to even figure out what impact you really have and what you're supposed to be doing in the big cog of the machine. Yeah, I think you make a good point when you're talking about specialization. People are so specialized that you have such a small piece of the pie. Your view of the pie is so small, so you don't really understand what all is going on unless you take a step back and look at everything yourself. Oh, yeah. Yep. And the funny thing about that is it's kind of hard to step back when you're working in a, in a way where you're consumed by what you're doing, but you're not consumed by why you're doing it in the sense like i don't know if i phrase that right but what i mean to say is this you know what you're doing very well but you don't know why you're doing it as far as like paying your bills the the basic answers for that yes that's why you go to job you get money to pay your bills and stuff but ultimately if you're, you're doing a specialized job you're doing it so well but you might not know how it impacts the rest of the other specialized jobs in that big world of the machine yeah because we're talking about options today, but we also know that this falls in line with like stocks and bonds and all other type of investment vehicles that kind of go together to form this whole strategy of the machine. And even just to, to follow up on the, the basics of options, the reason why most people get into options, it's kind of like, like the example you were saying, it's kind of like an insurance. So usually most people, I'd say majority of people are hedges who either they hold the underlying or they have some kind of underlying interest and whatever direction they're, they're betting on, they're looking for some kind of like a less riskier way of making that bet. Kind of like having insurance in your bet just in case you get it wrong, you know? Yeah, or yeah. if you do get it wrong, it's not going to cost you too much for getting it wrong. Before we go further into the reasons why people buy options, could we give a little bit more in terms of like, can you explain like what a call is and what a put is? Oh, yeah, yeah. So in options, you have, you have two types of options in the sense of you can either have a call option or a put option. So when they say a call option, you're having the option to buy something. And if they say a put option, it means you have the option to sell something. So um, usually when someone's trying to buy an option, they usually buy a put option if they have an inclination that whatever 
underlying it is, is about to go down in value. And they usually get a, a call option if they have a belief that it's about to go up in value. Just to add to that, since it's a, an agreement between two parties, you always have a buyer and a seller. So the buyer of a call option, for example, has the right, but not the obligation to buy stock at the strike price that's in the agreement. Oh, yes, yes. Whereas the seller has an obligation, the obligation once they've sold it, to sell the stock at the strike price up until expiration. Yeah, it's almost like, so it's kind of like insurance, right? So if a buyer, like you're saying, okay, I feel that Apple, for example, is about to go off the roof after these um, iPhone 10 phones come out, then you would say, okay, I'm going to set a strike where I believe that the price of Apple will go above it. And at that strike, because I'm going to have to pay a premium for it, I'm hoping that the premium I pay is less than the raise in price that Apple will have compared to the strike. So you're hoping that the price of Apple goes above the strike by as much as the amount of premium you paid for it. So if, if you paid, like, just throwing numbers out there, like maybe like $5 premium for it, you're hoping that the value of Apple goes up above your strike by $5 or more. And if it's the other way around going to a put, if it's going down, you're hoping that it goes down by the same amount that you paid the premium for, or even lower than that. Yeah, and then in terms of exercise, have you ever dealt with European? Yeah, so like different terms as far as American and European, these like called exercise terms. So you have actually three types. So you have American, European, and Bermudan. So um, the American type of exercise option says that if you get into an American contract, I guess, American exercise contract, you can exercise it. Meaning you could, um, as an option buyer, you have the right to choose when to exercise that option at any time up until expiration. Now, if you had a European contract, the only time you could exercise it is at expiration. So up until the time of expiration, you wouldn't be able to exercise it. You'd only be able to resell it or rebuy it, depending on if you were the seller or the buyer of the option. So I think and, it's worth noting on that, because American options are more flexible than European, they're going to naturally be a little bit more valuable than the European ones. Correct, correct. They're going to have more value because they can get exercise at any time, and they're going to be closer to the value of the underlying, as far as like the movement, just because of the fact that it's more liquid. How about in terms of strike price? Let's explain that. Okay, so because each option is based on the strike price. You have the price that's the current price of the underlying, whatever stock it is, and the strike price is the price you agree to on the contract to exercise at. That's the price you agree to to buy the underlying or to sell the underlying depending on if you have a put or call on it. It's the price at which the underlying stock is agreed to be traded if exercised. The buyer has the right to buy it at the strike price, and the seller has the obligation to sell it at the strike price. But Correct. that doesn't necessarily mean the stock is going to be above or below that strike price. It's just that's your agreement, regardless of where the stock price, strike price is. And then the other thing with strike prices is, in terms of terminology options, people will refer to them as either being in the money, out of the money, or at the money, based on the strike oh, price. Yeah. So basically with strike prices, it's all depending on whether it's a call option or put option. So, so if you are a buyer, for example, and you're buying a call option, if the strike price is below the current price, then you are in the money. Now, if the strike price is above the current price, 
then your option is out of the money or in other terms if it's close to expiration it's going to also be called worthless <laughs> uh, <laughs> in case you didn't understand worthless <laughs> <laughs> yeah worthless it's not going to get you much and also if it's at the current price we call it at the money or ATM and it's vice versa for the put options for example if the strike price of a put option is below the current price then it's out the money and if it's above the current price then it's in the money and if it's at the current price then it's at the money and then the expiration date is the part of the agreement that says this is when the agreement expires so yeah. if an option buyer has the option to buy a stock they're already agreeing that it's going to expire in let's say three months from now and then after those three months are passed, then that option is no longer valid. Yeah, so it's, that's what you have when you hear um, options are time-based securities. So they actually lose value as you get close to expiration. So um, when you have, for example, an option that's expiring next month, usually most options expire on the third Thursday of the month, for most stock options. And if they're weekly options, they expire on the Friday of each week. All right, so then in terms of what they're used for, you mentioned before about hedging and limiting downside. Yeah, so there's various ways they use options. Like the main thing they use options for is for hedging. So that's pretty much saying that because of the level of premium that you can pay in comparison to the underlying of the stock that you'd have to pay to buy it, each option contract controls 100 shares of whatever underlying stock you have. So you're getting a discounted price compared to how much the actual underlying cost of the, the security is. The other thing that I think is a huge purpose and value of options is to incentivize employees. Companies can pay their employees with stock options. The reason why I think it's such a good incentive is because when companies reward employees with options, they encourage employees to care about the performance of the company. It works better than stock because it's worthless if they're not in the money. If the employer pays the employee in stock options that are out of the money, meaning the strike price is above where it is currently, then the employee wants to work hard, make the company do well to make the stock worth more so that the stock options become worth money. But if the stock doesn't go up, then the stock options aren't worth anything. Versus if they were just paid in cash or even stock, then the cash, they don't care what happens after the fact, really. Or even with stock, then they could just sell it right away and not worry about it. So I, I think that is a really valuable purpose of options. And one of the reasons for that, actually, is because of leverage. So like if most of employees who get these stock, stock options, they get to buy extra stock at a discounted price with these stock options because most of the time they get given these options. And... um they can convert them at a certain time period into actual stock. And usually they'll do that if the performance of the, the company they're working for is actually achieving goals and doing better than expected. So that's the way it goes with your incentive as far as if they work harder and make the company better, they can amplify their return based on the options they've been given by the employer. That kind of touches on what you were already saying about another reason for them is just keeping capital liquid and providing more leverage where you don't have to put as much capital down to take on a position. Oh yeah, as opposed to 
if you were to actually put up the amount of money to get that same return, you'd have to buy so much in. You'd put down so much capital down up front that you might not be able to feel comfortable with that risk. Because to get that same move, you'd have to buy 100 shares. Yeah, so it does end up putting less absolute dollars at risk and also give you potentially higher percentage returns than the stock itself. But that being said, that doesn't mean there, there's no drawback to it. Oh, no. <laughs> there, they are. There's <laughs> like, a risk in everything. Matter of fact, like one of the biggest economic crises of this millennium is based off derivatives. Maybe not the same options we're talking about as far as stock options and stuff, but it's a form of derivative, and they call them credit default swaps. That's kind of like what brought us down with the whole um, subprime mortgages and stuff. So, like, they used leverage in a way where they had no actual skin on the underlying security they were dealing with. Yeah, so that's, to me, that's the really big danger with derivatives. I think derivatives of many kinds can have a purpose. Like, credit default swaps can also have a value and purpose. They help investors price different risks in the market. But once you start to get so far into... Yeah, well, speculation, but more so what I'm saying is when you start to remove underlying assets, it's like unsecured debt, for example. I think secured debt is great because that way, if the debtor can't pay the bill, there's an asset that the one who's making the loan can claim the underlying asset. The collateral. Yeah, exactly, collateral. In the case of derivatives, the danger is if there isn't an underlying that the person who's owed money can claim that's when there's a big risk. And so all the credit default swaps, if there isn't enough underlying that the owner can go back and claim some kind of underlying security, then there's a lot of risk there. Yeah, and also, again, with options, most option trading at a basic and maybe you could say close to intermediate level would be just pretty much buying options. It's only when you get to more of the advanced and complex where you start to sell options. And that's where you get into like the problems as well. Because with options, when you buy them, you can have unlimited gain. So if you buy a call at 1001 Amazon and Amazon goes to 2000 plus, or it can go as high as it wants, you gain as much as that goes up. And that can be unlimited. Now, for the person who's selling you the option, who's on the other side of that perspective, they now risk unlimited potential. So what ends up happening is we end up getting in trouble when the big option sellers don't hedge themselves with their significant contracts. So like they have unlimited risk. Remember that Dark Knight Rises movie? Yeah. So there's a, there's a scene in there where um, Batman, Bruce Wayne, ends up becoming bankrupt. And the way you do it is the Bane character and the bad guys, they end up going to the stock exchange using his um his fingerprint to make him get into a bunch of sell-put contracts. But the ones that he was getting into were so risky and had so much unlimited risk that whoever was buying them from him, they'd pretty much be able to get his whole entire wealth for nothing. Did they actually say that in the movie? Well, they said the reason why he became bankrupt is because they made him sell put options. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Because the Chicago Board of Options Exchange is where all these options are officially traded versus the New York Stock Exchange being in New York. Again, to go back to the whole example, when you have unlimited risk, for example, if you're the person selling the call option to someone who's buying a security at like $1 and the security itself is worth only $1, 
if that security, the underlying security goes up to like a thousand or whatever, you end up as the option seller being obligated. Because remember, as a seller, you are obligated to sell or to buy at the agreed price, whatever the, the option buy wants to exercise. So if it goes in his favor by a long, unlimited amount, they will exercise it. And that's where the risk comes in. I have an example just to make it a little bit more clear. When you were talking about one option giving you access to 100 shares of stock, if you wanted to buy 100 shares of Snapchat trading at $15 a share, that would cost you 1500 bucks to buy 100 shares of Snapchat. But if you want to have access or control of that same amount of Snapchat stock without putting down 1500 bucks, you might be able to buy one Snapchat option with a strike price of maybe like 16, for example, at 50 cents a share, and that would only cost you 50 bucks instead of having to put down 1500. Exactly, yep. You couldn't say it better than I could. That's like right there. The one thing that we didn't mention before, though, is not like options are all rosy and just completely better than stocks, because the thing with options is you have time decay. Like if you own the stock, you can just hold it indefinitely and it can appreciate or maybe it goes down. But the option, if you own it, since it has an expiration, as you get closer and closer to expiration, like you were saying, then it becomes less and less, has less and less worth. Yep. So essentially, that's where the risk comes in. If you are the, the option buyer, you're banking on the fact that the underlying moves to what you expected it to move before it, the contract expires. Now, if you're on the other side and you're the option seller, you're banking on the time decay to work in your favor so that the option becomes worthless and you don't have to be assigned or have to buy it back at a higher price. Let's talk a little bit about how they're priced just to explain how you get a price for these options. They're a derivative and they reflect something about the underlying stock that they're, they're based on. So if you have an Apple option, it doesn't have the same worth as the Apple stock, but it is somehow reflected is affected by the Apple stock. You've got the intrinsic value and the time value. Can you explain the intrinsic value and then the time value? Okay, yeah. So, um, so first we'll start with the intrinsic value. So intrinsic value would be the difference between the strike price and the current price if the option is in the money. So say, for example, um, if you bought the, the strike at, 15, at 16, right, and the price of Snapchat became 18, from 18 to your strike price at 16, you have $2. So that $2 amount would be the intrinsic value. Because that's the value that you, that if you were to exercise the option today, that's how much you would get as far as the difference. Because you'd be buying the shares for 16, even though they actually valued 18, and you'd be able to sell them at 18 currently at the market value and make a difference of $2 per share. But then there's also the time value, right? Well, so the time value is the other aspect of it. So the intrinsic value would be $2, but depending on how far you were to the expiration date, like say, for example, the expiration date was over 30 days, then you'd probably have an extra 30 cents to it, 40 cents to it. So instead of seeing the option being worth $2, it'd probably be worth $2.60, $2.50. It's because cause the time value is that the more time there is between now and the expiration date, the more likely it is for your option to be executed at a price that you want. 
So as time nears down, the closer you get to expiration date, if your option is out of the money, for example, the chances of it moving in the money becomes very low. So the value of that option won't really move higher unless something drastic happens in the market and vice versa would be the same thing. So if it was in, in the money, for example, like you would start to see that your option moves one to one with the underlying because it's so deep in the money that in of itself, the time value is no longer there because you know that you know that it's not going to go out the money unless something drastic really happens. All right, I'm going to see if I can try to catch you off guard. I'm going to mention things that affect the time value, and you say what impact they have. Time to expiration. Right, time to expiration. Time to expiration will reduce the value of your option if you're buying it, and it will increase the value of your option if you're selling it. So meaning if, if you're buying the option, the chances are the price of your option is going to go lower and lower as you get to expiration. The more time to expiration, the more value you have. The less time to expiration, the less value it has. All right, then how about volatility of the underlying? So the impact of the volatility of the underlying will impact the implied volatility of the option. And what implied volatility means for the option is what we expect the volatility of the underlying to be. So if the volatility of the underlying increases, it will directly impact the implied volatility, making us expect it to keep increasing. And what that does to the actual price of the option, it actually increases it. So what ends up happening is you end up getting the time value of it is actually worth more because the chance of it ending either in the money if you're out the money or out the money if you're in the money is higher because the volatility of the underlying can give you that chance before expiration date. Now, if the volatility is lower, then the expected move of the underlying to get to whether it's in the money for your option or out the money for your option is more predictable. So the price itself would actually stay lower. All right. So thanks for explaining everything. I'm glad you came on the show. Oh, no problem. No problem, Dennis. All right. Thanks again for joining us. And don't forget to catch us on iTunes or on Google Play. And catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan podcast. <laughs>